Well, welcome again. Thank you for being here this morning. We're going we're gonna to get started in just a moment. Let's, uh, let's first commit our time to the Lord and ask for his help as we study these doctrines together. Father, we, we seek you once again, and we know that we don't have to pry your hand open to give us bread because you are a perfect father. And so when we ask you for bread, you don't give us a stone. When we ask you for insight into your word, you give us that because you desire to speak wisdom, truth, timeless truth into our hearts so that our lives might be affected, our perspectives might be altered, our beliefs might be grounded in you. So we commit this time to you, Lord. We don't rely on ourselves. We don't acknowledge dependence on our own intellect. We acknowledge dependence upon your spirit who gives us the knowledge of the truth. So open our hearts, open our minds, help us to think, help us to respond to the truths that we consider this morning for your glory. Amen. All right, well, we continue in the doctrine of Scripture this morning. Last week, if you were here, we looked at two subheadings of the doctrine of Scripture, namely the authority of God's Word and the inerrancy of God's Word. And this morning, we'll be considering two more subheadings. Uh, That would be necessity of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. This is going to be uh, an insufficient treatment of the sufficiency of Scripture as as our time allotment is going to constrain us in some ways. But I think in initially orienting ourselves to these headings underneath the doctrine of Scripture, we might do well to consider some of the questions that, that are touched on when we're considering these doctrines. Questions like, what do we know of God apart from the written record that we have in our Bibles? What can we know of God if we didn't have a Bible, if there were no such thing? as a Bible. What about the tribesman um, who never receives a Bible? Can he know anything of God? Uh, What does he need a Bible for? How necessary is the Bible for Christian growth? Can can we compensate it with other spiritual disciplines? Can I just evangelize more, go to church more, and pray more? Does that compensate for the absence of Scripture? And so that touches on the necessity of the Bible. And then when we get into the sufficiency of Scripture, we're, we're We're in a whole other world. We're into the questions of does the Bible really address the contemporary issues of life in the 21st century with any kind of comprehensiveness? What about the authority of the church and councils and creeds? What about church history? What does that have to do with the Bible? Wasn't it the church, sometimes this is is stated, wasn't it the church that brought the Bible into being? And if the church gave us the Bible, the church kind of gave birth to the Bible, then, then isn't it dangerous to kind of take the word of a child and dismiss the mother, right? It, the mother gave us the Bible. Therefore, is there some sense in which the church has a greater authority than the Bible or a kind of authority that would be able to give us knowledge of the Bible without which uh, the Bible itself would be insufficient? Some of these things bear on it. Now, there's no way to answer all of these in 40 minutes, but suffice to say that the doctrines of necessity and and the sufficiency of God's word have implications across a wide field of practical questions and and questions related to church life. So let's, let's dive into this. First of all, 
are there things that we can know of God apart from the Bible? Does God reveal himself in more than just one way, namely through his inscripturated revelation? And the answer is yes. There are certain things that we can know of God through his created world, whether we have a Bible or not. If you can turn in your Bible to Psalm 19, this idea actually comes from the Bible that, that God reveals himself outside of the Bible as well. In this psalm that we're about to read, God makes it clear that he reveals himself to us in at least two different kinds of ways. What theologians call general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is that revelation that goes out to all through God's created order itself. Through the natural world, we may observe and take in some sense of God's revelation of who he is, but that that knowledge is insufficient. It needs to be supplemented by a saving knowledge of God through his word. And so really, this is, remember, this is the Psalms. These are the book, this is the book of the Psalms. And so Psalm 19 is a song. You can see that right there. It's in the, in the heading right before it. It says, to the choir master. So David apparently gave this to the choir director and said, work this up. We want to sing this on Sunday. It was a song. And this song, if you will, has at least two verses. And the first verse deals with God revealing himself in the created order, in the natural world, to all mankind. And the second verse has to do with special revelation. So the first verse is going to deal with God revealing his majesty in creation. Follow along with me, the first six verses. The heavens declare, there's a revelation in the heavens, declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge of what? Knowledge of God. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out throughout the whole earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. This is God revealing himself in creation. This is the explanation for, for why it is that we can stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and feel our smallness and feel the greatness of God and we want to reach for a guitar and we want to sing a worship song because God is speaking. God is, is communicating something of his power of who he is, we are experiencing Psalm 19 in that moment. And God has intended to communicate things in, in such a way that that word goes throughout the entire earth. There's no place where that voice is not heard. It's as universally felt as is, and this the metaphor that's used here, as is the heat of the sun. Its rays go out and it touches everything and everyone. No one is born an atheist, according to Psalm 19. You have to work hard to suppress the revelation of God in his created world. He, the speech gets through. Its measuring line goes throughout the earth. Look at Wayne Grudem's comment on the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing that God exists or knowing something about God's character 
and moral laws. And this is reinforced by the Apostle Paul when he's writing in Romans chapter 1, talking about how God's word gets through. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? The truth of Psalm 19. The truth that the Grand Canyon told them there was a God. They were suppressing that truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, this is what we get when we're looking at the Swiss Alps. We see something of his eternal power, don't you? His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. General revelation. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the problem of Romans 1 is not that we're natural-born atheists who can't know anything about God until we have a Bible. The problem is we're natural-born idolaters who see God in his created world, who have a sense of right and wrong stamped on our hearts, on our conscience, and yet we turn away from this God. We know that he made us intuitively. We know that he made us and that he made everything that we're looking at in this world. And yet knowing that, we turn away and we worship the creation itself. And the primary form of creation worship is self-worship. We live unaccountable to this God as though we are autonomous. And that's the problem of Romans 1. It's not that the revelation doesn't get through. The problem is it does get through and we turn from it. That's why we need salvation. So there is something that God is revealing. General revelation is an awesome thing, but it doesn't save And that's what brings us really to the crescendo of the song in Psalm 19. It doesn't crescendo and hit its climax, its triple forte. It doesn't hit that in the first verse. It hits it in the second verse where it contrasts that revelation that goes out indiscriminately to all throughout the earth and that revelation which comes to God's covenant people through covenant documents, namely God's word, which reveals more than we could ever discover in the natural world by observing the natural world. So follow along, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Listen to the impact of this revelation. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them there is great reward. So because of general revelation, we can, as it were, hear the Swiss Alps saying to us, God made us. Consider his power. Worship him. But the Swiss Alps are never going to tell you Jesus died for your sins. 
The Niagara Falls aren't going to tell you, repent and believe. The Grand Canyon is not going to tell you about the return of Jesus, the King of Righteousness. It's not going to tell you that. If you're going to get that truth, you're going to need one of these. You're going to need a Bible. Because in God's Word, He reveals special revelation, special truth to His covenant people, personalized truth, not just general revelation. Wayne Grudem writes, I think I read this quote, didn't I? The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, maintaining spiritual life, and knowing God's will. But it's not necessary for knowing that God exists or knowing something about God's character and moral laws. So, apart from biblical revelation, we cannot hear and respond to the gospel, which brings us to this sub-point, necessary for a knowledge of the gospel. Now, you might say... uh, Yeah, I'm not sure about that because there are tribes who know the gospel and who have responded to the gospel but don't have a Bible in their language. Well, that would be true, but the missionary who went to the tribe had one. And he went with that Bible and that biblical knowledge of the gospel in his heart, in his hands. He brought the knowledge. Otherwise, he would never have been able to introduce them to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. He wouldn't have been able to particularize and talk about the atonement and the cross and what, it hap- what happened on the cross. So that truth came to that tribe through missionary activity, through a knowledge of the gospel. Actually, missions doesn't even make sense. If the world can come to a knowledge, a special knowledge of the God of covenant, of the gospel, apart from the Bible, it doesn't even make sense. Why risk malaria? Let the mountains tell them Jesus died for their sins. Why risk flying spears in cannibal tribes and, and discomfort and all of that? Why risk any of that? If it's not necessary, just let the jungles speak the gospel to them. No, missions proceeds on the, on the premise that this special revelation is necessary in order for people to respond savingly to the gospel. And, and Romans 10 teaches that. There's a kind of logic of missions in Romans 10 where the Apostle Paul is actually thinking out loud about that very thing. And he's saying, how are they going to believe in Jesus if they never hear of Jesus? And how are they going to hear of Jesus if no one is sent to them to tell them about the gospel. So the logic of missions in Romans 10, the answer to those questions is very obvious, the way Paul's asking them. They won't. They will not hear that from the jungle and from Victoria Falls. They're going to hear that when missionaries go. And that's why Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news to those who otherwise would have never heard that good news. We need special revelation in order to respond to the gospel. So when we talk about the necessity of the Bible, one of the things that it's necessary for is that these books introduce us to Jesus Christ and his saving work. The the second thing is, is the Bible is necessary for our spiritual growth. I think there's a direct correlation between our intake of God's word and our spiritual health. Think about if if our spiritual health was manifested in our physical bodies, what would we look like? I think that if that happened, and suddenly like for, for today, the miracle was, your physical body is going to represent your spiritual well-being, your health. 
your intake of my word, we would suddenly realize how dangerous neglect of the Bible is. We would, we would look at ourselves in the mirror and say, oh my goodness, I, I look like someone on a, on a help these impoverished people kind of infomercial or kind of aid relief commercial. I look like a Holocaust victim. I look, I, my stomach's distended. You can see the rack, my frame, because I'm not taking in vital nutrients for my survival, for my life. I need this book. I need the Bible to live. Without the Bible, I can't fight for joy. I can't fight and persevere in trials. I can't grow in my understanding of God. I need, I need the Bible. Notice what Jesus says when he is experiencing temptation in the wilderness and he draws out God's word. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he's not talking about his own kind of subjective impressions of God's word. He's talking about biblical writing. And the way that we know that is, he begins by saying, it is what? Written. He's talking about a physical collection of writings wherein God speaks to his covenant people. And he says, get back. I don't need to eat this. I don't need to turn these stones into bread because it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. It is clear that this is a part of our survival as Christians. Peter writes, 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. In other words, we don't need God's word like a baby needs applesauce. You know, it's enjoyable. It's my favorite. It's a blessing to me as a baby. No, we need the Bible the way a baby needs milk. It is life. It is health. It is essential. It's necessary. I'm always affected by this quote in the Puritans' love for the Bible. This is Thomas Goodwin's account of experiencing a service in which a pastor named Rogers was preaching. Mr. Rogers, not the one you're thinking of. Although he went to seminary with R.C. Sproul and was a believer. Mr. Rogers was on the subject of the scriptures. That's what he was preaching about. I love this. And in, and in that sermon, falls into expostulation with the people about their neglect of the Bible. He personates God to the people, telling them, well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible. You have slighted it. This is one generation after the Bible's been printed and given to them. Already we're neglecting it, right? You have slighted it, and it lies in such and such a house all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to look at it. Do you use my Bible so? Well, you will have my Bible no longer. And he takes up the Bible from his cushion and seemed as if he were going away with it and carrying it from them. But immediately he turns again and personates the people to God, falls down on his knees, cries and pleads most earnestly, Lord, whatsoever thou dost to us, take not thy Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods. Only spare us thy Bible. Only take not away thy Bible. 
Then he personates God again to the people. Say you so? Well, I'll try a little longer. Here's my Bible for you. I will see how you use it, whether you love it more, whether you will value it more, whether you will observe it more, whether you will practice it more and live more according to it. This had a tremendous effect upon the congregation. What an understatement. We need God's word. In these 66 books, we have no less and no more, by the way, than words that have proceeded, the exact words that have proceeded from the very mouth of God. They are not an elective course. This is essential. This is our life. Jesus said, these words are spirit and they are life. These are not dead words. This is not ink. This is living truth. Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God's word is living, it is active, and we need it. And to neglect it, we are neglecting our own thriving and flourishing as believers. They're necessary words, but they're more than that. They're sufficient. So let's talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Think about the difference between necessary and sufficient. To say something is necessary is to say it is needed. It's indispensable. You have to have it. It's necessary. But to say something is sufficient is to say more than that. It's to say this is all that is needed. You don't need anything more. The Bible is not only necessary... It is sufficient. Think about, if I'm going to go to Gerard Playground, I'm a Viking. I played at Gerard all my life, Viking pride. Any other Vikings in here? No, no Gerard. Any Johnny Bright? That was our arch nemesis, Johnny Bright players. Uh, there we go. Uh, let's say I'm going to go this afternoon to Gerard Playground, the old stomping grounds, and I get on my bike and I throw my football in my backpack and I head over to play football at Gerard. Can I play football? I can't. Um, I've, I've got a football. The problem is I don't have, I don't have the other parts that are, that are making it necessary for me to bring those other parts so that I can play the ball. I'm not fast enough to throw myself a pass. And so I have what's necessary, but I don't have what's sufficient. Now, change, change the imagery. Now I grab my boys and some friends, and we all get on our bikes. We bring the football now we're headed to Gerard, and we have not only what's necessary, we have what's sufficient. We don't need anything more. We can play the whole game of football because we have not just one part that's absolutely essential, but we have everything that we need to play the game of football. God's word is sufficient for us. We need to talk about in what sense is his word sufficient. What is it sufficient for? Sufficient to direct us in what pleases God absolutely comprehensive and sufficient in directing us into what pleases God. Look at this quote. Hopefully it's not the same one I read earlier. (laughs) The sufficiency of Scripture (laughs) means that Scripture contained all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God that we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. One of the most popular ways we undermine God's authority in the Bible is not by directly challenging its authority or truthfulness, 
but by questioning whether the Bible gives us all the necessary pieces of the puzzle. So we might tip our hats at the Bible and say, yes. I mean, in everything that the Bible addresses, it addresses it with complete sufficiency and complete authority. But, you know, just the nature of the case is we live a couple thousand years after the Bible was put together, right? So, I mean, it surely can't address all the issues of life in the 21st century in America. You know, what does the Bible have to say about casinos? What does the Bible have to say about prenuptial agreements? Does the Bible even address these kinds of issues? What does the Bible say about living in a democratic republic? What does the Bible say about human cloning? What does it say about the teenager who wants to cut herself? Does the Bible speak with any kind of authority and sufficiency into these very modern, very real issues of life? Paul says this, under divine inspiration, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all of the writings that we have is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Look at this thought from Grudem. He's commenting on that passage, and he says, Thus there is no good work that God wants us to do other than those that are taught somewhere in Scripture. It can equip us for every good work. To be morally perfect in God's sight, then, what we must do in addition to what God, what must we do in addition to what God commands us in Scripture? Nothing. Nothing at all. If we simply keep the words of Scripture, we will be blameless and we will be doing every good work that God expects of us. Look at that verse that he references. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Now he equates that. He sets this in apposition. Whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. There's a, there's a synonymous relationship between blameless living and walking in the law of God, walking in God's word. I think one of the most underappreciated topics and studies in American evangelicalism today is the value of God's law. The value and ongoing, really the perennial relevance of the Ten Commandments. Um, For me, the most helpful thing about the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we've been studying it in our family for about ten years, um, is the way that these leaders and pastors came together, studied God's word, seeking to equip families to understand God's word. And the way that they unpack the, not only the commands, but the implications of all of God's laws in the Old Testament is simply astounding. You should get Star Meets book downstairs, Training Hearts, Teaching Minds. And it just takes you day by day through devotions along all of these commandments, unpacking what they're, what they're going after, the relevance of God's word. If you want to consider, I mean, this is not some ancient dinosaur fossil, the Ten Commandments. If you want to begin to consider the relevance of the Ten Commandments, just think about what occasioned the Ten Commandments. What happened? What happened on Mount Sinai just after the Exodus? Is God himself carved a tablet out of the mountain? and wrote on that tablet with his own finger. 
this was not only a covenant document, this is the only covenant document in world history that had God's handwriting on it. It is, it is astonishingly relevant for today. I, I am, in a sense, I think it's good that that ended up getting smashed at the base of Mount Sinai because I think we would worship it. We would be tempted to, it would be the relic of all relics. God's handwriting is on that piece of stone. But those laws, rightly understood, those Ten Commandments are a summary of all of the moral law. Every command that is in our Bibles derives from that summary statement, that Decalogue, those ten statements of the expressed moral will of God. There's not a single exhortation that you'll find anywhere in the Bible that is not somehow derived and found, nested in the original Ten Commandments. They all grow out of the Ten Commandments. One of the things that's meant by the doctrine of sufficiency is this. When it comes to discerning what is righteous, God has not left us in the dark. Our Bibles contain thousands of statements of the moral will of God for our lives. Ten summary statements with hundreds of concrete applications of what kinds of words and actions please God. Now, it's easy to get really confused about God's law because the Bible talks about God's law in two different ways, doesn't it? You could read certain texts where if that's the only passage you read, you would not like the law because that text seems to be down on law. But it's down on law when it's, it's saying don't use law for what it wasn't intended to do. If you misuse law, you abuse this, the intention of God in giving us the law. If we try to use the law to get justified before God, we're abusing the law. It was not designed to grant us acceptance with God. Law-keeping is not our road to acceptance with God. And so, with respect to being justified before God, we must resist, we must shun the law as a means of justification. But we must embrace it as our delight insofar as the law reveals. The law is our Father instructing us, saying, this is the path of obedience. This is the path of righteousness. This is the path of danger and death and destruction and apostasy. Stay away from that path. Embrace my word and my wisdom. This is right. This is wrong. It is kind of God that we don't have to grope around in darkness wondering what pleases God. Paul said, how would I even know? Covening's wrong. If it wasn't for the law of God, praise God for his law. We read, there are so many passages you read in the Old Testament, and if all you know are a few verses in Romans about shunning the law with respect to it justifying us, if that's all you know, you scratch your head and wonder, why does the psalmist so frequently say, in my soul I delight in your law? Because in God's law, he's revealing right from wrong. He's instructing us as children. He's telling us what satisfies, what brings us joy, where obedience lies So the question is, do the commands of God come to us with enough specificity to be helpful for 21st century life? Does it address the kind of moral dilemmas that we face in our our times? Ancient commands and modern applications. Look at this quote from John Frame. The sufficient content of Scripture includes not only its explicit teaching, but also what may be logically deduced from it. Actually, there's a simpler way to describe what he's talking about than to use the kind of heavy, high-octane logical deduction language. 
And it's simply the word application. Application is taking what God is explicitly commanding, but not only that, seeing, God, what are you after? How many kinds of tentacles does this passage have into all kinds of different moral questions of right and wrong for life? So these commands of God are not only authoritative in what they explicitly, specifically say, but they have far-reaching authoritative implications for our lives. When we apply truth, we're seeking to discern what is God timelessly after for his people? What am I called to believe and how am I called to respond? Now, if this is an illegitimate exercise, drawing out implications of text of scripture, then the liberals are right. The Bible is not sufficient. There are tons of areas in our lives that the Bible is oblivious about. It, can't, it doesn't speak to human cloning. It doesn't speak to some of the issues I mentioned just a moment ago. It just simply doesn't. Didn't know about them and therefore doesn't speak to them. But if it's legitimate to draw out application points from explicit and specific commands, then our Bibles open up. They begin to flower out and address all of the ethical concerns that might face us. Let's talk about two particular illustrations. Hath God said enough? Test case one, alcohol. Is God's word sufficient when it comes to to talking to us about alcohol. What about drug abuse? Do we need to make up new commands to regulate regulate things like pot smoking since the Bible doesn't explicitly address marijuana, pot usage, right? It doesn't address those kinds of things. Do we need to make up new commands to say, okay, well, the Bible couldn't have gone here, so let's make up some commands because we know God would probably be on board with this. Say you have a close friend who's getting drunk on weekends. Does God's word address that believer? If so, where do you go? Where do you you go to begin to address that issue? Well, Ephesians 5 is a classic passage on that. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. The question when we're talking about sufficiency is, what does that verse really cover? I mean, if I'm defensive on that matter and I want to keep getting drunk on weekends, I'm going to press you on that, aren't I? I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to say, well, hold on, let's read the verse. The verse says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. This verse doesn't say anything about daiquiris, wine coolers, vodka, paint fumes. It doesn't, it doesn't address any of those issues. This verse says, and it's an expl- Matt said the sufficiency of Scripture means we can't add any new commands to God's Word. And so therefore, this verse says, do not get drunk with wine. It's a drink selection issue. Is that really the only authority that we have from God's Word to speak to this issue? I mean, think about it this way. What is God after? What's the authoritative command that God is seeking to address? Is he simply trying to modify our drink selection? In other words, is the, verse, is the verse essentially saying, I don't have a problem with you getting drunk, just not with wine. Right Now, we know that's, that just is nonsense. When we read the text with honesty, submitting to the passage, we come away from the passage saying that it's not just about the drink. It's about the drunk. It's about the... It's not that God wants to spoil a good time. It's that he wants his people in control of their moral faculties. 
which some can testify are severely compromised in a drunken state. We know that God wants us in control of our faculties. That's the issue. So paint fumes are just as authoritatively addressed by Ephesians 5 as drunk with wine is. So God's word is sufficient to address these issues. Think of another one. Hath God said enough? Test case two, abortion. So, so you say the Bible condemns abortion, and I say, show me the verse. Show me the verse that says, do not abort. Show me the verse that says abortion is wrong. Does the Bible have sufficient clarity to address this contemporary issue? Where do we go? One place we could go would be Psalm 139. And when you get to Psalm 139 and you read the first 12 verses and you get to verse 11, verse 11 locates God Almighty. And where does it find Almighty God? In the womb of David's mother. God Almighty, in verse 13 of Psalm 139, is making David. He's making the very psalmist who will write this. He's forming his legs, his arms, his nose, his toes. That's where God is. We're not adding to the commandments of God's word when we say abortion is wrong. Here's what we're doing. We're reading God's word, his authoritative, sufficient word. We're finding out when life begins, and we're relating that to the fifth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. Life begins in the womb. Therefore, God has authoritatively spoken. Abortion is an abomination before God. It is wrong. And we can say that not kind of hoping that we're right biblically. We can say that knowing God says this is wrong. Because we're moving from the explicit commands into the sufficient extensions of God's authority into multiple hundreds of different modern and contemporary applications. When we say God's word is sufficient, we're not only bound to the explicit wording of texts, we're called upon by God to study and apply authoritative truth from God to contemporary situations, which may seem at first glance not to be dealt with by Scripture. Now, if if this seems like kind of a high intellectual, logical deductions kind of thing, we're not doing this as independent creatures. We're not doing this independence on our own logical deductions deducing capabilities. We're doing this in dependence on the Spirit. Everything that we said in week one about how to study theology is studying it with humility, with dependence on God, with a prayerful attitude, with a heart to obey what we find God saying in His Word. So that's what we're doing as we study these things. When we open God's Word and seek to gain wisdom in order to live by His truth, the Holy Spirit is on location. He is active. This quote from John Frame, the Christian life is a continuing conversation with the Bible with God's revelation and creation, and also with the Holy Spirit, who enables us to understand and use revelation. He brings to our attention teachings, commands, promises, and questions that we have not yet seen. He points out new ways in which Scripture applies to our lives. Not only does He work in an intellectual way, but He works with our will, conforming it to God's commands, and with our emotions, so that we delight to hear what He says. This is not the invasion of rationalism into Christian faith. This is what we're called to do. Think, and I will give you understanding in all things, Paul said to Timothy. The Lord will give you understanding in all things. So three ways to embrace the sufficiency of Scripture. This will be a kind of recap. Don't add to its sufficient ultimate authority. Let me just add by way of qualifier, because I think this is important, that the Bible allows secondary authorities. 
the Bible itself allows secondary authorities to speak into our lives, to be influential in our lives. General revelation is a secondary authority. So we don't have to be afraid of the astronomy textbook. Read it and be amazed by the God who made the stars. Right? We don't have to be afraid of that. That's, it's okay to take in insight from that source. Government. Government is a biblically prescribed secondary authority in our lives. So when the policeman says, pull over, pull over. It's what God wants you to do. Well, actually, he wanted you to obey the law in the first place. <laughs> and so the only time that we're ever called to disobey the government is when the government calls us to disobey God. So Peter says, you're going to tell us to stop preaching? You decide whether it's smart to disobey God rather than man. But we know what we're supposed to do, right? There's no such thing as a closed country. The Bible's coming in, so are missionaries. They might be secretive, but they're going to be preaching the word, whether the government likes it or not, because God has spoken. This is God's will. But it doesn't do away with the secondary authority. Secondary authority that's prescribed in God's word, pastors and teachers and church history, That's a secondary authority. So listen, so read good books. Listen to the sermon later on this morning. Listen to it. No, God speaks here. Our prophetic impressions as we're praying, that's a secondary authority. So keep your antenna up as you're praying, listening for God. But those secondary authorities should never contradict God's word. And the moment a secondary authority, whether it's pastor, your prophetic impression, the governing officer, Whenever that secondary authority contradicts the authority of God's word, that authority is wrong. That secondary authority is to be disregarded, and God alone is to be worshipped and obeyed. You see one illustration of this (coughs) in the 16th century, in the Protestant Reformation, of which one of the primary issues, probably really the formal cause of the Reformation, was not justification by faith alone. It was sola scriptura. It was scripture alone as the sole basis of sufficient authority for the life and practice of God's people. And so Martin Luther began to start to see this, and it was stirring in his heart, and he was reading the scriptures, and he was seeing this. And so he's called before the high-ranking authorities in the Roman church in 1521, the Diet of Worms. And they laid out all of his teachings, and they said, Luther... We want you to give us an answer without horns, without teeth, without evasion. Give us an answer. Will you recant of everything that you've written here? And Luther's response is famous. He says, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture and plain reason and not by popes and councils and creeds, for they have often erred and they often contradict one another. So unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture, I will not recant. For my conscience is held captive by God's word. To act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. And thus was born the Protestant Reformation that day. It was born out of, out of a, a statement of the sufficiency of God's word to speak to us. Now, Luther, Calvin, and the rest were not averse to the writings of history. They loved the creeds. They loved the Nicene Council, the Athanasian Creed. They loved those, and they frequently, Calvin's quoting, if you read Calvin's Institutes, he's constantly quoting Augustine and Ambrose and a number of people from the ancient past. He's quoting them insofar as they're agreeing with the Bible. They disagree with the Bible, he takes issue with them. And so it's, it's a, 
It's the pursuit of the knowledge of God's word so that God might authoritatively lead us in his sufficient revelation, namely in his word. It was argued by some in the Roman Catholic Church that, as I said earlier, that the Bible is the mother. uh, Sorry, the, the church is the mother of the Bible. The church made the Bible. But that is simply not the case. The church doesn't make the Bible any more doesn't make the Bible legitimate any more than your banker makes your currency legitimate. They receive it as legitimate. The church even used that passive term, recipemus. It's a Latin passive term for we receive these. They've always been self-attesting of the authority of God. We receive these as God's authoritative word. They didn't set themselves in the original context over the word of God. There's a submission to God's word. There's a recognition that God has clearly self-authenticated himself in these these writings. So, listen to God's word. Allow God's word to be sufficient when it comes to authority. Don't add to its sufficient commands. Let me just read this brief quote. You can look at that passage of scripture talks about the same kind of idea here. This, This is from Wayne Grudem. On the sufficiency of Scripture, this is also an important principle because there is always the tendency among believers to begin to neglect the regular daily searching of Scripture for guidance and to begin to live by a set of written or unwritten rules or denominational traditions concerning what one does or does not do in the Christian life. Furthermore, whenever we add to the list of sins that are prohibited by Scripture itself, there will be harm to the church and to the lives of individual believers. The Holy Spirit will not empower obedience to rules that do not have God's approval from Scripture. Nor will believers generally find delight in obedience to commands that do not accord with the laws of God written on their hearts. In some cases, Christians may repeatedly and earnestly plead with God for victory over supposed sins that are in fact no sins at all. Yet no victory will be given for the attitude or action in question is in fact not a sin and is not displeasing to God great discouragement and prayer and frustration in the Christian life generally may be the outcome. I'll just give you one quick kind of, it's almost an exaggerated example, but it really is the case. I remember hearing a message. I was 19 years old. I was very zealous. I remember hearing a message in which um, a man argued from the principle of the tithe that we should tithe our daytime in prayer. And so I wasn't praying more than five minutes a day, but suddenly I felt like God had authoritatively told me I had to pray for a certain number of hours, whatever that is, a certain number of hours and minutes a day. And I would set my timer. It's very legalistic and rigid, but I thought, if I don't do this, God is displeased with me. And when I fell asleep, I woke up with this sense of burden that I displeased God and fell asleep. I didn't obey him. And I was ridden by it. It wasn't a command of God's word. It should have never been stated as a biblical injunction. It is not a command of God. And therefore, my conscience was wrongly informed. And I felt like it was a sin to do something God said was not a sin. God was pleased with my time as a young believer, calling on him and reading his word every day, whatever amount of time, and I would grow in that. And so that's just one example of how we can add to its sufficient commands. Finally, don't veer from its sufficient emphases. God has emphasized certain things as central in his word. Not every passage in scripture is equally central and equally important for living the Christian life. I gave you two two examples here. Judges 3.17, and he presented the tribute of Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. There's a verse of the Bible, right? Uh, Here's another one. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which is closer to the center of Christian faith? The second one, obviously. So if I'm, if I'm living my life learning about Eglin and Moab, and I know that the terrain of Moab, and I'm just really diving into this, and I can go on, or for example, I can go on for 20 minutes about the dimensions and specs of the tabernacle, but I can't talk for five minutes about the vicarious atonement of Jesus on the cross, and I have flipped the emphasis of the Bible. I am I'm majoring on minors rather than majoring on majors. What God has sufficiently said is central is clear. It's it's observable that it is central. So we want to major on the majors, which is what we intend to do with the next several weeks of this study, to, to talk about the big ones, the big major central issues, some of them at least, that the Bible brings up. So we'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.